You can hear it in the empty theaters, in the empty stadiums. Hope is setting the stage for a comeback when life's victories will be sweeter. We'll celebrate how far we've come and learn that all we did, we did for each other. Spread hope, not COVID. Michigan.gov slash coronavirus. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC, and a political commentator for KNX Radio in Los Angeles and WGN Radio in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. If you want to learn more about me and my political polling and communications company, or if you want to, if you have any ideas or suggestions for Deadline DC, the best way to reach me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Brad Bannon, all one word. Welcome to all of you watching me on Twitter or Periscope. Now everyone can watch the show on Periscope by going to periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. You can also watch Deadline DC on Facebook by visiting tinyurl.com forward slash BB Facebook Live. Today in the first half hour of Deadline DC, we'll talk presidential politics and preview Thursday night's big presidential debate with our good friend, Leslie Marshall. In the second half hour, we'll take on the fight for the Supreme Court with Anissa Singh from the Planned Parenthood Action Fund and our own, and our own Mark Grimaldi on the provocative progressive political panel. Uh, first of all, our very special guest today is Leslie Marshall, who deserves the credit um, or blame for all of this every <laughs> Monday uh, on Deadline DC. Uh, Leslie gave me uh, my start in radio and has graciously conceded uh, this hour time slot every Monday morning to me, and I hope I hope she hasn't lived to regret it. I uh, haven't. I'm okay. alive and I don't regret it. I love it. I think you're doing a great job. I'm a fan. Thank you, Leslie. Yeah, that's important to me coming from you. I should also note that uh, it was uh, almost uh, 14 years ago uh, that I was on Leslie's radio show for the first time. It was in October 2006 when I came on her radio show to uh, talk about the 06 midterm elections. And now we're on our fourth presidential election together. Yes, we uh, yes we are. And in 2016, I was texting you to the point 
And then I, I was crying at the end. <laughs> I yeah, was like, are you sure, Brad? Both. Are you sure? Are you sure? Wait a minute. We've just lost Wisconsin. She just lost Wisconsin. You know? <laughs> yeah, that was a very sad night, which hopefully will remedy uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, let's start. I want to talk generally about the presidential race. Uh, the president was uh, busy over the weekend, as he always is. Uh, first of all, he uh, went to Michigan, I believe, on Friday. Uh, and of course, uh, he uh, loves his locked them up chant. And uh, he talked about the uh, Mich uh, Michigan governor uh, who uh, was the victim, was the uh, intended victim of a right wing kidnap and maybe murder plot. And of course, the president acknowledged Governor Whitman's problems by asking uh, the crowd to lock her up. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I was thinking when I saw this thing. Uh, if you look at the national presidential polls, uh, Donald Trump is basically in a dead heat with Joe Biden uh, among men, but he's losing women by anywhere from 25 to 30 points, depending upon which poll you look at. And, you know, why is he so insistent on beating up Politic, Democratic political figures, especially Democratic uh, female political figures, uh, when he's so doing so badly with women. He's just making a situation worse, in my opinion. I really can't answer that. I, I mean, look, uh, I think Donald Trump does what Donald Trump wants, and he likes like a, a bully um, to pick on um, sometimes the underdog, certainly somebody who is a victim of a potential abduction, uh, a, a potential terrorist action, and like you said, potentially death, because the plan was by this extremist organization to kidnap her, to hold their own trial, and to find her guilty, and the punishment for guilt in their world is death. Uh, so it, it's not too far a reach. We're not being dramatic there. Um, look, I, I, I would imagine if I worked on the Trump campaign, I would be cringing every time he does this. You were correct um, regarding the female numbers, and he knows that. The only thing that he's tried to do to appeal to the uh, suburban female is uh, to make them feel like, you know, uh, you know, big, big, bad, uh, radical rioters are going to come to their neighborhood and loot and burn things down. And gosh, they may not be white. I mean, that's really what, you know, he uses that tactic of fear. He tried to, in Florida, identify with another group he's losing, that's seniors, saying that he was a senior, talking on one side of his mouth, saying that they would not lose Medicare. But if you look at the actions that he and his administrations have administration have taken and things that he has uh, proposed and has backed, uh, it would do quite the opposite of what he's telling seniors. So I don't understand why, especially with women, uh, to answer you, Brad, why he would not want to take a more empathetic tone. And I just want to say one more thing. Um, right before we came on today, I was going through my Twitter page and I saw this video. I seriously cried. It, it's a video about Joe Biden and his son, Bo. And when his son, Bo, was dying, the reason, one of the reasons he's, he's running is not to give up what he's been doing all his life. He wants to make Bo proud. Now, I'm getting choked up, you know, just saying this. And one of the things he says at the end of this video that's very powerful that I just posted on my Twitter page before uh, I came on with Brad here is 
that this president lacks empathy. And he lacks empathy, empathizing with a governor fearful of not only what could happen to her. Now, if, if, if they tried to kidnap her and one of her staff or children were there, what would they have done? I mean, just lacks the empathy and um, politically very, very dumb not to be empathetic to a female governor and to um, to demonize her rather than recognize what she could have been the victim of. Yeah, he just seems to be incredible. I think lack of empathy, lack of empathy is important. Uh, at a campaign rally in Florida over the weekend, uh, he made his case uh, for the support of women uh, by arguing that he had been successful in uh, increasing water pressure in dishwashers. Uh, and he constantly refers to women as suburban housewives, even though many of them aren't housewives and probably just about all of them have jobs outside the home. He seems to be incredibly tone deaf when it comes to women. And uh, it looks like he's going to pay the price. Uh, let me ask you about something else he said at a campaign rally. You know, sometimes I think he does these campaign rallies for Joe Biden. Uh, he uh, said he accused Joe Biden of a very heinous crime over the weekend in Florida. Uh, he said that if elected, Joe Biden would listen to the scientists uh, in dealing with COVID. And I, you know, I did a double take and I thought, yeah, Joe Biden probably <laughs> would listen to the scientists uh, and maybe we wouldn't have 220,000 dead Americans uh, because Donald Trump hadn't listened to the scientists. Uh, he also, in a uh, campaign call to staffers over the weekend, uh, said that uh, Dr. Uh, Anthony Fauci had been a disaster. And if he had left it up to Fauci, there would have been 500,000 deaths. What is the president smoking, do you think? Uh, uh, you know, narcissism. Uh, I mean, the, thing, the same thing he's been smoking all along. Look, I'm glad you brought up the attack on uh, Dr. Fauci. Um, it, this, president Trump has said, Tony's a good guy. I'm putting Tony in charge. Listen to Tony. But at the same time, Dr. Anthony or Tony Fauci, um, you know, if, if you're... It to me, look, Mark is my and your executive producer. If we sit here and dog him publicly, well, we look like fools because we put him in that position. Donald Trump put Anthony Fauci in that position. Dr. Anthony Fauci is a very respected uh, physician and uh, researcher and scientist. And you were right, Joe Biden would listen to the science. And I, I'm I'm confused when I see how tight this race is. I am confused when I see that the president's approval rating is holding steady at 46% as of five minutes ago. I, I just don't, uh, I just don't get it. Um, but uh, yeah, he seems to, it, when he makes it all about him, um, the, the people that support him go crazy. And as you can yeah, see, that support do. is not wavering. Yeah, we're going to break now, but we come back from break. We'll have more Deadline DC with our very special guest, Leslie Marshall herself, who is uh, taking time out of her busy schedule uh, to join the show today. Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, our special guest, half hour, is Leslie Marshall, who 
started all of this, and I'm I will forever be grateful uh, to Leslie for giving me uh, the chance to do this show uh, every Monday afternoon. Uh, let's go back to the uh, presidential debate. Let's look at this from Joe Biden's point of view. Uh, I agree with you, Leslie. I think that despite what his staff is telling him, Donald Trump can't stop himself from being rude and aggressive. Uh, He's going to, uh, my guess is, he's going to constantly interrupt uh, Joe Biden, uh, make funny faces while the former vice president is talking. Uh, How would you handle this if you were Joe Biden? Much like I would hand, you know, people call uh, Donald Trump a petulant child or a bully. And I would handle uh, a petulant child or a a bully in a certain manner. And that's how I would handle Donald Trump. Um, You ignore them because they're doing it for attention. Um, They're trying to, to, they're, they're goading you on to try and say, shut up, right? Or call you a clown, which Joe Biden later said he felt bad about doing and that he shouldn't have done. You don't get down in the mud with them. One thing Michelle Obama was right, former first lady was right about is when they go low, we go high. So calmer, uh, fight fiction with facts, um, you know, well-placed laugh or, you know, like a chuckle, you know, somebody. But really, I mean, bullies want attention. Petulant children want attention. Um, So ignore the childish and and bullying behavior, stick to the issues. And remember, your audience is the American people who have pretty much already decided for or against you. If you're Joe Biden or Donald Trump, millions have already voted. And you're talking to that sliver of undecided voters who the debate probably won't change the mind of. But if it changes one, you want that one to be in your column. Uh, yeah, I agree with you, Leslie. Uh, you have to, uh, yeah, it's impossible to deal with a bully. And, you know, honestly, I think personally, uh, the more Donald Trump rants in these debates, uh, the better it is for Joe Biden, because, uh, you know, he, you know, it almost seems to me sometimes like his comments about uh, Governor Whitmer, uh, his comments about Joe Biden would listen to the scientists. It seems to me that sometimes Trump is almost running as much to vindicate himself as he is to win this election. You know, sometimes I think Donald Trump has already given it up on running a re-election. And this is basically sort of a farewell tour uh, so he can make his case. Well, I was right all along. I don't care what you think about me anymore. It just seems so self-destructive sometimes. Well, I, I, although it it does, I, I don't think he thinks like that. I don't. I think he really believes he will win. And but by the way, you know, looking, you know, at numbers, he has a good chance to win. Uh, this is not in the bag. Um, you know, Biden's doing better uh, polling wise than than Hillary was with, uh, um, you know, with white voters. Um, he's doing very well with African Americans. He's not doing as strongly with Latinos as she was. Um, And he's doing better with women uh, than she was and with seniors uh, than she was taking some of that away from Trump. Um, But at the end of the day, when you're looking at the swing states, you know, he may have an advantage, but we're not looking at double digits here. We're looking at like, you know, 1.7 to 4 percent within the margin of error, certainly around 3 percent for many of these swing states. So this is a very close race. And I think Trump thinks he has it in the bag. And I think Trump is going to be Trump. And that works for him. That's successful for him. Like I said, look at his approval rating holding steady. Why should he change 
his way of uh, campaigning when it worked for him in 2016. And it clearly is not killing him now. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's the only way he knows how to campaign. I think he's incapable of being friendly, personable. Uh, I, I just don't think it's in his DNA. Actually, he can be. And that that to me is he's very he can be very friendly, very charming, very personable if you like him. And if yeah. you, you know, and if you kiss his ring, so to speak. Um, and that and that's a side, you know, people because the people that love him, that's what they see. That that and they see the, you know, the, you know, beating on the chest, you know, the bravado and they like that. Well, you're right. Uh, the national polls show Joe Biden. I think the average is about nine or 10 percent lead in the national polls. But if you look at the battleground states, uh, Joe Biden uh, leads in most of them. That's the good news. The bad news is you're right. Uh, I think, for instance, a new CBS poll showed him up three points uh, in Arizona, uh, you know, which could disappear overnight. I think he was a CBS poll also showed him five points ahead in Wisconsin. So uh, the good news is Joe Biden leads in just about all the battleground states. The bad news is his lead is very slim. Uh, but two very states slim. where he leads that, although it's slim, the fact that it's a near tire he's leading are Texas and Georgia. And I mean, if he flips Texas, it's over. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. That's uh, I'm not sure it'll happen, but no, but it. you're right. It is very close. Uh, there was a new poll. I think it was a Quinpiac University poll uh, that showed Biden up by seven points in Georgia over the weekend. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people felt that wasn't accurate or Florida. Yeah, so. that's probably that seems. Yeah. Uh, and after 2016, it's hard to believe the polls. And I don't want voters to believe the polls, because if so, they'll stay home. That's what a lot of Democrats did. Over 100 million voters, excuse me, over 100,000 voters um, stayed home. When, you know, there's uh, Joe Biden actually has a thing he puts out. How many people voted for Hillary? How many voted for Trump and how many stayed home? Um, more state, almost as many stayed home as voted for Hillary and Trump combined. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It is. Uh, well, let's uh, try this to close out. Uh, if you were Joe Biden, what would you do? What do you think Joe Biden needs to do to seal the deal and close out this election in, in the last two weeks? <sighs> one, he needs to be who he is. Even Senator Lindsey Graham said he's one of the nicest people you know. He needs to show, if Americans haven't seen that yet, who Joe is. Two, um, he needs to be presidential because Donald Trump is not. And I think a lot of the American people are looking for that decorum, that professionalism. Three, he needs to be prepared. I have to say, I didn't think Kamala Harris or Mike Pence were extremely prepared for their debates. I thought that they... Uh, didn't answer questions that they knew would come at them. He needs to be pre prepared to answer about Hunter. He needs to be prepared uh, to answer um, about anything during the Obama administration, even though vice presidents have not as much power as people think. Uh, you know, it's not like being president or even being a, a senator or house member. And then I would harp on the areas that the American people care most about, which is the economy, COVID and health care. And all three of those tie in together and just remind them, do you want four more years of what we have now and, and highlight the failures of this presidency, but also not just say his way is bad, give an alternate, alternate way, which is better, like citing Goldman Sachs and Moody, 
you know, who have said that economically his plan would be better for uh, GDP, uh, better for jobs, better for our nation. Um, he, that's what he needs. He needs to do, in my opinion. Leslie, thanks very much for joining us today on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, and I know you're very busy. You have your uh, commenta- commenting duties on Fox and you have to do the show. So thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we'll uh, be back after these messages with the provocative progressive political panel. Joining us today will be Anissa Singh from uh, Planned Parenthood Action Fund to discuss the battle over the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Barrett. Uh, So stay tuned. We'll be back after these messages. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Welcome back to Deadline DC. In this half hour, as usual, we'll be doing our provocative progressive political panel. Uh, And today we're going to talk about the battle over the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Barrett. But first, Republicans hope the appointment of a conservative activist will galvanize the president's right wing base this year. The GOP base is already energized, but the fight over Amy Barrett's nomination to replace civil liberties champion Ruth Bader Ginsburg could be an essential element of the Democratic nominee's effort to get progressive, potential progressive supporters out to vote. Fear is a powerful motivating force in elections, and the fear factor over ending Roe versus Wade and the Affordable Care Act will close the enthusiasm gap and drive Democratic voters to the polls. The battle to protect Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy could seal the deal between Biden and the progressives and boost Democratic turnout between now and November 3rd. Democrats might lose the battle to the Supreme Court, but win the battle in the court of public opinion by electing a president and a Senate that will fight for equal rights and blow and slow the conservative court's efforts to turn back the clock for American women. Our guests today on the provocative progressive political panel, uh, first, uh, Anissa Singh, who is uh, from the uh, Plant Parent. Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Uh, She is an attorney turned organizer and democratic strategist who brings with her more than a decade of experience in public interest and social justice work. Her full-time role is director of judicial nominations at Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Her Twitter handle is Anissa, uh, A-N-I-S-H-A underscore S-113. Joining Anisha on the panel is progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. Mark has worked on Get Out the Vote operations for several Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. Mark is also active in campaign finance reform and efforts to promote, promote cancer research. His Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi, all one word. Okay, let's start with uh, Anisha. Uh, before we talk about the battle over the nomination of uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, 
let's talk about the legacy that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg left behind. Uh, Anissa, what do you think uh, historians will remember most about uh, the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Thanks so much, Brad, and thanks for having me on the show. You know, it was it was devastating for all of us to hear about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, those of us who grew up looking at her as a role model um, and someone who really understood what it meant to fight for equal rights, uh, reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, you know, rights across the board. Um, and she had that voice, you know, she was, she's known for her dissents um, when it came to protecting rights for all people. Um, and, and for us at Planned Parenthood Action Fund, you know, we are indebted to her for always standing up for reproductive health care and health care access for all as well. Um, you know, and one thing that is just so frustrating is that we didn't really even get a second to mourn. Um, the second the, you know, the news came out that RBG had passed, uh, we immediately saw uh, folks, uh, you know, Republicans try to uh, make this a partisan fight and just politicize her death. Um, and so that was, you know, really unfortunate. And, and we're taking that energy and we're taking that loss and we're turning it into energy to fight for this uh, Supreme Court seat, for RBG's seat, for the people's seat, um, to make sure that we're protecting her legacy. Okay, let's uh, let's start at the beginning. Uh, before, of course, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, had hearings last week on uh, Judge Barrett's uh, nomination. Uh, what did we know before the hearings started about her record uh, as a legal scholar and a jurist? I mean, let's just take even a, a further step back and reset for a second. The fact that this hearing is even happening, that it even happened, that this process Amen. is happening, is absolutely ridiculous. Um, it's breaking all standards for public health and core democratic principles. We know that um, over 30 or almost 30 million people have already voted this election. Eight million cases of, of COVID, including uh, 220,000 individuals who have died. And yet, you know, Senate Republicans have been rushing this process and moving forward with this process. So just I need to name that uh, as at the top. Uh, but going into the hearing, too, you know, when it came to Oni, Amy Coney Barrett, we knew what her uh, record was and we knew what Trump's litmus tests were. Trump had made it clear that he would only appoint justices who would overturn Roe v. Wade and strike down the Affordable Care Act. Um, and her record itself has made clear why Trump believes that she passes his litmus test. Uh, she's been an active and vocal threat to reproductive health and rights and has suggested that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. Um, and both in 2012 and 2015, she criticized the Affordable Care Act. So going into the hearing, we already knew what to expect um, and we didn't learn anything new from the process. Yeah, that was uh, very striking, actually, uh, watching the hearings last week. Uh, she refused to take a position, you know, say she had a position on anything. Uh, now, I remember one instance, uh, apparently while she was a law professor at uh, Notre Dame University, uh, she signed a petition that called Roe versus Wade Barbaric, I believe, is the word in the ad. Uh, but she said with pretty much a straight face last week uh, that uh, she didn't really have any preconceived notions about Roe versus Wade uh, and even believed that uh, uh, she was a big believer in Supreme Court 
precedent. So what did she have to say about Roe versus Wade last week? Yeah, that's right. So she, you know, she put her name on a two page newspaper ad that called Rose legacy barbaric. She also once she became a judge on the on the Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, she herself voted to rehear cases involving abortion restrictions in which other judges had previously held that the abortion restrictions at issue were unconstitutional. Um, so, you know, her record goes on and on and on. But during the hearing, she, yeah, she just declined. She declined to call Roe. Uh, which has been law of the land for 47 years and a precedent that 77% of Americans have said they don't want to see overturned. She declined to call it a super precedent, but she was willing to call some other cases um, a super precedent. So despite it being, you know, overwhelmingly popular, despite it having been the law of the land for 47 years, she declined to call it a super precedent over and over again. And so we, you know, we at Planned Parenthood Action Fund watching this, that we didn't get any assurances. We basically got confirmation of what we already knew. And we know what's at stake here. There are 17 cases on abortion one step away from the Supreme Court. And as you know, the Affordable Care Act is going to be heard by the Supreme Court one week after Election Day. So her anti-abortion, anti-healthcare views um, will have a grave impact on abortion and health care across the country. Uh, Mark, I know you paid attention to the hearings last week. What did you get out of them? Um, I do think that, unfortunately, even by the terrible standards that have been set by the Republican Senate in the Gorsuch and Kavanaugh hearings, um, you know, this this is uh, in a whole different way just as bad because as both you and Anisha brought up, uh, you know, Judge Coney Barrett was a complete blank slate. They couldn't get her to talk about her views on almost anything. And she knows she can do that because the Republicans before the nominee was even announced before justice Ginsburg, God rest her soul was even buried. They were saying, we're going to confirm whoever the justice is and we're going to do it before election day. I mean, that is not what the, the Senate is supposed to do. They're supposed to advise and consent and, you know, review the nominee on on all of these different issues to the American people that are important to the American people. And the other thing that I would point out, as both of you alluded to a bit, is the Affordable Care Act is under assault uh, again. And people may not realize because it was strategically asked and granted that this case not be heard until after the election. And the reason they do that, uh, Republicans do that, is because they know that it's not politically popular, hello, to axe health care for the 20 million Americans who have gained it under the Affordable Care Act. And let me also mention that 10 million Americans have lost their health insurance after they lost their jobs during this pandemic. So taking away health, taking away the Affordable Care Act, which Judge Coney Barrett has indicated she has every intention of doing, is on the ballot. And if you want to vote for a continued assault on health care during a pandemic, then continue to vote for Republicans, because that is exactly what this plan is. Brad, I know we're coming up on a break, so I'd be glad to talk with both of you more during the break, if you'd like. We are going to break, Mark. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll be right back uh, with more Deadline DC after these messages. Uh, for our audio listeners, uh, you will we'll be back in a couple of minutes. And with our video listeners on Periscope or Facebook Live, we're continuing uh, with the provocative progressive political panel. We'll be back after these messages.
Okay, welcome back. As in the second half hour, we are doing our provocative progressive uh, political panel. Our guest panelist today is Anissa Singh, uh, who is the Director of Judiciary and Democracy Affairs at Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Uh, The Planned Parenthood Action Fund is actively opposing uh, the elevation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Uh, Also on the panel is progressive activist uh, Mark Grimaldi. Uh, so let's get back to it. Uh, Mark, before we uh, go back to Anissa, uh, you and I are both Syracuse University alums, uh, and we have some news from Syracuse University we want to talk about today. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I wanted to uh, just say how proud I am of our uh, shared university, Brad, because today, uh, for those who are familiar with uh, the exonerated five formerly People called them the Central Park Five, who were falsely accused of rape and then um, negatively plastered all over the press by none other than Donald Trump, despite their um, innocence. Uh, they, um, you know, had lives before this happened to them. Um, and one of the uh, the exonerated five, his name is Kevin Richardson. Today. Um, he was awarded the first uh, honorary undergraduate degree in university history uh, for a degree in uh, fine arts and music at Syracuse University because that is the school that um, he was pursuing to attend before this all happened to him. Um, And as a a Syracuse University alum myself, I just wanted to say how proud I am of the university for this action and um, just how happy I am for him uh, to see him getting his life on track before um, it was taken away from him. I'm glad to see him take it back. And uh, I just uh, wanted to say again how proud I am of the university for this action uh, just while I had a moment here. Yeah, well, as another Syracuse University alum, I'm also proud of uh, SU uh, for trying to rectify a horrible wrong, uh, which was partially perpetrated by Donald Trump, who wanted to execute all five men on the spot, even though they were innocent. Uh, Anyway, uh, let's go back to the Supreme Court nomination. Uh, Anisha, let me ask you this. Uh, Do you think that... uh, Barrett's uh, nomination to the Supreme Court. I I think, honestly, there are a lot of people horrified by this nomination because it very well could turn back the clock to Americans like back to the 18th century in in a couple different ways, whether it's a woman's right to choose um, or affordable health care. Uh, do you think that uh, the energy that comes is coming from your organization and other organizations uh, will help uh, galvanize progressives uh, to vote on November 3rd, which is only two, two weeks away? I think people are angry. They're angry that they haven't seen any COVID relief. And I'm losing track of how many days, over 100 something, whatever days it's been since May. Um, you know, they haven't seen any um, efforts to curb this uh, pandemic, but instead they have 
Um, this constant reminder that healthcare is at risk just a week after the election in front of the Supreme Court. Um, and so people are angry and they're taking that anger to the ballot box. And we're seeing that, you know, there's this unprecedented 30 million um, people who have already cast their ballots. Um, and, and that's hopeful. Uh, and so we hope that people are using their voice in ways that they can, whether it's calling their senators about this fight or, or showing up at the ballot box, because there is a lot at stake. If, if I could take a quick second and just talk about what that is, you know, we saw that after the Senate confirmed Justice Kavanaugh, state politicians worked quickly to introduce more than 300 abortion restrictions and passed 25 abortion bans in that single year, um, which have made their way through the court systems as we speak. Now there's already five states with only one abortion provider and others are poised to ban it outright if Roe is overturned. We know that there are 25 million women of reproductive age who live in a state where that could be where abortion could be banned if it was overturned. So there's just a lot at stake here. And, and you know, Mark was talking about this earlier. If a, the ACA is overturned, we've got 30 million people who will lose their health insurance. Pregnancy could be a pre-existing condition again. Um, you'd once again have to pay out of pocket for preventative care. So there's just a lot at stake. And I think people are fired up um, and they're angry about this current fight and the, the fact this, that this confirmation process is even happening. So um, the hope is that they're going to use their voice at the ballot box. Well, let, let me ask you, follow up by asking you this question. Uh, if uh, if uh, she uh, becomes a uh, justice on the Supreme Court, uh, there'll be essentially a six to three conservative majority on the court. And as you said, you know, so in many states, I guess in the South especially, it's virtually impossible for a woman to get an abortion now, even if she wants one. Uh, there are all sorts of restrictions in many states uh, on abortions. And I, I guess my que I have two-part question. First of all, what would happen in this country uh, if a conservative Supreme Court uh, next year, and you said there are, there are abortion cases, pro-choice cases bubbling up to the Supreme Court, could the Supreme, what would happen if the Supreme Court nullified Roe Ro versus Wade? It, it would be a catastrophe. I, I can't even imagine it happening, but it it could, especially if Barrett uh, gets the nomination. What would happen in this country? Yeah, I mean, so just to recap, there are 17 uh, cases one step away from the Supreme Court that, uh, you know, deal with abortion. Um, there's also uh, 480 abortion restrictions that have passed already since 2011. Uh, making it uh, making abortion inac inaccessible for people with low incomes, black and brown people, and women who are forced to navigate racist and discriminatory systems to begin with. Um, we've already seen that there are financial barriers, you know, transportation, childcare, all of these other pieces that go into play here. Um, and if if we do see that kind of a case and that kind of action taking place uh, and decision coming down from the Supreme Court, a lot of this burden will fall on the states. Um, but the downfall of that is then we have some states that will have abortion access and some that won't, and it'll, it'll be a mix. And, and there will be women, again, 25 million women of reproductive age right now who live in a state where abortion could be banned um, if Roe is overturned. So there's a lot at stake there for those 25 million women um, and, and everyone across the board, because we know that abortion access and reproductive health care impacts everyone. 
Uh, Mark, let me ask you the same question about uh, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I think 23 million Americans depend on the Affordable Care Act uh, for health care insurance coverage. Uh, and the uh, what would happen in this country if we had a Supreme Court majority next year? Uh, because it is. In fact, I think the, the court has a hearing on the Affordable Care Act uh sometime later this month uh the week after the election just the week after the election uh what would happen in this country if the affordable care act was ruled unconstitutional by the conservative supreme court especially with uh, with amy barrett on the court as an extra conservative voice well i think you go back to the bad old days before the affordable care act except it's going to be worse because you're going to have people who have become sick from COVID-19, and that will be known as a pre-existing condition. And don't forget, the people who survive COVID-19 have many uh, illnesses, their lung uh, capacity is affected later in life, and we, we haven't even you know been able to study how it's going to affect you later in life. So as time goes on, if you're able to be charged higher premiums or just not taken as a patient at all, considered uninsurable, um, that's what can happen again to not just the millions of Americans who rely on insurance uh, from the Affordable Care Act, but don't think you're safe because you get insurance through your employer. Number one, you can lose your job. And number two, you can then be discriminated based on uh, pre-existing conditions, even if you get it through your employer and, and insurers would be able to charge you more because of that, even if you get uh, health insurance through your employer, which was the case previously before the Affordable Care Act. So this is life, literally life and death for many Americans, because if you don't have health insurance and you get sick with COVID-19 or something else, you can die. I mean, it, it's as simple as that. It's very black and white. Okay, that's it for today. I want to thank our guest, uh, Leslie Marshall, uh, Anissa Singh, who is Director of Judiciary and Democracy Affairs at the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, and progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. I'm here Mondays at 3 p.m. If the Lord is willing, the creek don't rise, and if Bill Barr doesn't declare martial law or designate Deadline D.C. as an anarchist jurisdiction, this is Brad Bannon. Stay strong, stay safe, uh, and don't drink the cool Clorox or the Kool-Aid. It didn't do the president any good, and it won't help you either. Thanks, Brad. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, thanks Anisha. Anisha. Thank you. All right. Take, take care. care. Stay safe. Thank you very much, and thanks your husband. Yes, please. <laughs> well, thank you. Good all luck right. from now till the election to yes. all of us. Yes. Amen. Right. Keep up the fight, all right? You too. All Bye. Right, take care. Bye. Toxic chemicals have contaminated the Huron River, but Representative Ryan Berman voted to cut millions from the state's cleanup fund. Berman's record is toxic. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate. This is what the Huron River sounds like. What you can't hear are the toxic chemicals like PFAS that have contaminated the water. Toxic PFAS chemicals are linked to cancer and brain damage in children. These toxins have poisoned our water, making it dangerous to drink and unfishable. And State Representative Ryan Berman is making it worse. Berman voted to cut more than $21 million from the state's contaminated site cleanup fund. 
And the damage doesn't stop there. Just months ago, Berman sided with the big oil company that caused the largest inland oil spill in American history, voting to let them drill a pipeline under our waterways. Ryan Berman's record is toxic for Oakland County. Vote Julia Pulver for representative by November 3rd. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate.